1: Welcome to this week's edition of America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week I'm excited to be talking about Donald Trump's energy policy. The Republican National Convention is going on in Cleveland, and we're, we're excited to be presenting the, such a positive energy message coming out of the Trump campaign. Now, it hasn't gotten a lot of attention, so I took this opportunity to draw attention to it In my column this week, entitled, Trump, Making America's Energy Policy Cheaper, Faster, and Better. And here to talk with us today about Trump's energy plan is what we might call his energy surrogate. And really kind of the mastermind behind this plan, we have Representative Kevin Kramer, the at-large congressman from the great state of North Dakota. So, Representative Kramer, thanks for joining me today on America's Voice for
2: Energy. Well, Marita, it's, it's a pleasure to be with you. Thanks for the opportunity. And I have to say right up front, I read your, your piece, and, and it was excellent. Well done, thorough, and uh, accurate. And When I was done, I felt optimistic. <laughs> so I appreciated, appreciated what you wrote. Well, I'm glad you
1: felt that way. I've had someone on one of the posts where it's posted, I believe it's on Town Hall, and someone said something like, uh, you know, this is the best news I've heard in a long time. My proofreader, uh, who is a Trump supporter, uh, said that, or a Trump fan at least, uh, she said this is the, one of the best and most hopeful pieces you have done in a long time. And I really do, uh, I, I'm excited about Trump's energy policy, and I appreciate all your input into it.
2: i well, glad to have been part of it.
1: Before we get into that, I want to mention for our listeners that you're calling uh, from the convention center in Cleveland. Can you give us a, a sense of, and we're recording this, I'll let my audience know, I usually don't like sure. to let people know that this is recorded. I like to pretend it's all live. But sure. the reality is we're recording Monday before the convention has started officially, but there's plenty of activity going on there. Can you give us a sense of what's
2: happening? Well, there is. In the Quicken, in the Quicken Loan Center, um, all of the networks, of course, have their studios set up. And uh, I was there early this morning. Chris and I were both there at 8 o'clock this morning and watching the Today Show and watching the Good Morning America, I mean, and, and um, CBS Morning News. And then right across the street on 4th Street, uh, NBC has it set up and, of course, CNN. And, and in fact, right now as I sit here, I'm in the Washington Post studio where they're doing some tv stuff and i see charles crowhammer just came in so it's a very festive atmosphere all the while interestingly the final touches are being put on the the uh, center itself uh the practicing uh, of the national anthem that ch- testing the lights and the sound system and still sweeping up the you know popcorn from the last basketball game or something so it's really quite a, quite a work in progress yeah, I bet. I, I, I would love
1: to be there. Uh, I was in the Tampa convention and was did many radio interviews myself there at Radio Row, so I can picture where you are and uh, imagine what's what's taking place there. So thanks for that first-hand report. Moving oh, on love, to...
2: Mar- Marita, oh, go ahead. Marita, I just have to tell you, you'd love this as a radio person. So uh, Media Row at the uh, convention center itself is actually the, a parking garage. Converted to media row, and what's amazing is you go into this parking garage, and it's, it's like the lux, luxury suites at a at a, a dome stadium. It's really quite remarkable what they can do with some time and some ingenuity. Well, I would
1: I, it's got got to be really fun uh, to experience and to see. So uh, in, enjoy your time there. But now moving back to uh, our our topic at hand, let me mention for our listeners and, and thank you also. Uh, Representative Kramer, that you and I worked together in D.C. uh, on the uh, effort to lift the oil export ban. And in fact, I have a picture of you on my Facebook page. Facebook has a feature where they now let you have a little description of yourself. They call it the intro, and I have yes. a picture of me speaking there at that press conference that you organized in front of the Capitol building. And uh, you are immediately over my right shoulder on the left-hand uh. side of the picture on my Facebook page. So you know you're a part of of the regular feature of my Facebook page. So I know, being from North Dakota, that you were very involved, of course in energy issues, and that is your part of your background before you became uh, a congressman. So how did you get involved in working with uh, Donald Trump on his energy policy?
2: Sure. So, you know, as a former energy regulator, as you, you mentioned, I served on the Public Utilities Commission or Public Service Commission in North Dakota for nearly 10 years, and so now that I'm on the Energy and Commerce Committee in Congress, when when the presidential campaign was uh, you know, we had seventeen candidates, and we were all watching all those debates, and it whittled down, whittled down, whittled down. When it came to the North Dakota State Republican Convention in early April, you know, North Dakota did not hold a primary or a caucus, but rather um, chose to go with a, a unbound delegates. Which, of course, I rejected as a really bad idea. <laughs> but um, at that point, uh, you know, North Dakota's delegates were looking pretty darn important. And so it, our convention was setting up to be a, a pretty big deal with Ted Cruz scheduled to speak. I had invited um, Ben Carson to come and, and surrogate for Donald Trump, and he had agreed to do that and I chose uh, along with the Trump campaign to do to use that opportunity to endorse uh, Mr. Trump at our convention and try to you know get more of our delegates elected. well uh, that went so well. Donald Trump joined me on my radio what I call Talk Radio Town Hall, uh, show, and he's talked about energy, talked about both um, the uh, fracking revolution and how that has made uh, America much more energy secure in terms of oil production, and he talked a lot about coal mining, and of course both coal and oil are important in North Dakota. Well then, when he secured the nomination uh, really after Indiana, the next uh, that very week, he gave his foreign policy speech in Washington, D.C., and I attended that speech uh, as his guest, we visited a little bit, we talked about him coming to North Dakota, um, and he said, hey, I'm gonna, I want to come for that Wilson Basin Petroleum Conference, You've been working with Harold Am on that, and I said, count me in on that deal. And, and so I really began, at that point, working with him, writing some stuff that he could use in that speech in Bismarck, uh, which was another three or four weeks later. Um, but at the same time, Marita, as one of the original eight members of Congress to endorse Mr. Trump prior to locking up the nomination... All of us have had a role in putting some meat on the policy on the policy bones that uh, that he'd been running on. And it just so happened that you know with my background and expertise and committee assignment, um, energy, uh, you know energys my, my part of that, um, my part of that team. So did
1: he, did he require a, a quite a bit of education? Obviously, uh, you know he's not from his background, he's certainly not an energy expert.
2: Well, I would say he, he, here's the thing he is, and, 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 he, and I think we all know this. He's an America First guy, right? So, so when he comes up with an America First economic plan or economic policy, obviously energy fits into that perfectly. And, um, and so it's, it's pretty easy to take an energy policy and apply it to an America First policy when you're from North Dakota,
1: Yes, it certainly is when you're from North Dakota, but perhaps not when you're from Manhattan. That's why I was
2: wondering. No, no, that's right. But but even he understands as a business person, having developed around the country, it's not hard for him to understand, wow, if we produce more of this stuff here. We create the jobs here. It's better for all of business um, to have lower cost energy. And it didn't take a lot of, really not a lot of education. It was really rather easy. And then when you think about, the influence that OPEC has in the global marketplace and the understanding that we're now selling in the global marketplace, obviously, um, you know, he grasps that pretty easily. So when we start talking about things like my OPEC commission um, and, uh, and, you know, trying to make sure that the the global marketplace is fair as well as available, um, you know, it's easy to understand. All right. Sorry, but We're just saying goodbye to some friends as they're walking out the door. <laughs> no worry, no worry. That's it's part the, of why the, I uh, part the, of why I let people know where you are. <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, yeah. So pretty, let's let's move on. I, I know when you and I talked uh, last week, one of the things that you told me uh, is about Trump's at, attitude towards federal lands, and you know that you told me he has a yeah. typical Manhattan viewpoint of the West and federal lands. And I didn't understand that until you explained it to me. So could you
2: explain sure. that for our listeners? Sure. When you think about living in a, in a concrete jungle like New York, and uh, and I would throw Washington, D.C. into that same category, although we have, you know, maybe a little more green space than than New York. You know, and you view the West, especially the mountains west, and, and you know, and I'd throw North Dakota, South Dakota, Nebraska, and everything, you know, from the plains west into that category where there are a lot of federal lands, obviously that's, really, that's even more precious to somebody who doesn't see it every day, perhaps than those of us who live in it. And so he has a very, you know, wants to protect that, and understandably so he has a great value to nature. Um, what I think, you know, what he probably isn't as familiar with is the, with the people who live there who see that, so, that it's got so much more potential than, um, than you even realize just looking at it. And so one of the areas of discovery, I think, has been that you might remember that early on he wanted he advocated pretty strongly for, for federal land staying in federal hands and federal management, and others in the West saying, no we want to return it to state hands." And this is an important component to the energy plan. And he sort of you know he sort of settled in on the place where, you know what? Maybe a, you're right. local state um, government is better, closer to the people. they understand it better course they have a they value their own land and water and air um you know maybe some sort of a federal state partnership in managing these lands to begin with might be a better route and and frankly marita from a pragmatic political pragmatic standpoint that does make sense because you know one of the problems challenges we have in federal policy so often is is the extremes um trying to negotiate you know and and oftentimes that leads to paralysis and yet he's, he's already sort of finding that middle ground and saying, hey, federal government's screwing this thing up. They're leaving a lot of things, a lot of federal lands, in fact, not just under underutilized, but in many cases adding to the danger. Take, for example, their um, their uh, opposition, the, the green movement's opposition to deforestation or, or even just cleaning up. I was just going to bring that up. I was just going to bring that very topic up. So you you see what that leads to is forest fires right and and so yes. when if you and we see that in my state of New Mexico congressman well, Pierce
1: and I have I've worked with him and spoken at rallies with him uh, on trying to get that management of the federal lands back to the people whose whose
2: livelihoods and lives are endangered by these bad management policies well and then so you see exactly and of course representative Pierce is the, the he's probably the greatest champion of of this issue, there is in the United States Congress, and very articulate articulate on it. But what we, but when you see that the small environmental you know footprint nowadays that that horizontal drilling has on it, and that the technology that keeps you really, what you end up doing is you have an, you have another whole set of people of industry on um, federal lands that that can not just provide an opportunity to make money off of it for the taxpayers and make us more energy secure and independent, but then who who also have an eye for the environment. And, and you know, they're the ones that, as you know, they, they do the, the, all the studies, environmental impact studies and, and uh, even uh, archaeological studies, and you actually enhance nature by the appropriate development of it. And I think Donald yeah. Trump is, you know, understands that. But here's what he really understands, and I'd love this I'm, I'm gonna ask, I'm going to ask you to hold that thought because we've yeah. got to take a break, but we'll come right back
1: with that and get into some of the more specifics of uh, the energy plan. Sure. Stay with us on America's Voice for Energy, and we'll be right back.
2: Your auto love and investment demands the best, and for 45 years Passport Transport has been meeting those demands. From manufacturers to the one-car collectors and all other facets of the auto industry and antique auto hobby. The first and the finest with unequaled service and peace of mind. Passport Transport, your auto transportation company. Contact PassportTransport.com with your need today. Passport Transport.
1: Obamacare is failing. We all know that, but you need to know why and what you can do to get us back on the right track. Visit us at ObamacareWatch.org. This is Grace Marie Turner of the Galen Institute. Join us at ObamacareWatch.org.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare, but for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening
1: back to america's voice for energy we're talking with donald trump's energy surrogate representative kevin kramer from north dakota and representative kramer just before the break you were you were about to head into us uh something that you really appreciated and i had to interrupt you
2: well i think what we're, we're talking about was about um of course there are some federal lands uh, okay i'm looking at some other friends i'd love to track down um anyway um, <laughs> sorry about this really i know fun. it's distracting no. there it's anyway. Um,
1: we'll remind our listeners that you're co- talking to us <laughs> from the the Quicken Arena in Cleveland, where the RNC is holding its
2: convention this week. So anyway, um, you know his, his appreciation that of the value of the minerals underneath our federal lands. In other words, the United States taxpayer has over fifty trillion dollars worth of oil and gas under its jurisdiction and when when oil is a hundred dollars a barrel that's you know that's like a hundred and twenty trillion dollars worth well donald trump one thing he understands is business and he understands revenue and to think that our government with a 19 trillion dollar debt actually owns 50 to 100 trillion dollars worth of oil and we leave it in the ground as uh, by virtue of our policies that's he. He can find that offensive pretty quickly, and then yeah, an and we we've
1: got the same problem with lots of other things like uh, rare earth minerals and right. uh, other oh, yeah. critical minerals. I've got a friend that's been trying for I believe seven years, maybe it's only five, but many many years fighting the Forest Service in Montana, trying to get a tungsten mine, an exploration permit. For a known critical resource that we're importing in from China, and we have it in the United States, so that's just an example.
2: Then there are many of them. You're exactly right. Whether it's trees, you know, and the opportunity that that the timber industry has to not only generate revenue and jobs, but also to generate, but also to provide um, opportunity and to provide opportunity to clean that old timber out of there and avoid forest fires. And that's true in a million different ways. Yeah.
1: Look, think, thinking of that kind of local management idea, let's move to fracking. We've had Bernie Sanders and yes. Hillary Clinton both out there really demonizing this miraculous technology and they want to basically regulate it out of existence which basically will eliminate drilling in the oil drilling and natural gas drilling in the United States because this new era of energy abundance is as a result of fracking what how does Donald Trump feel about hydraulic fracturing
2: well he's been pretty clear that those rules need to be repealed and and to the degree that um, we need regulation it needs to be more states first as you know that nobody loves North Dakota's Water and land more than North Dakotans do, and same is true in Texas and New Mexico and Oklahoma, and um and that there's no way we should we from a national security standpoint. If nothing else, Mr. Trump understands that America's economic security and America's national security is tied directly to our our energy security. And why would we, especially at a time like this, where the Middle East is so volatile and where where we don't have really any friends outside of Israel, but we have varying degrees of adversaries, um, why would we make ourselves more dependent rather than less dependent on them? And so, so these rules like the fracking rule and the, the methane rule, um, you know, the, lots of others, obviously a clean power plan, you know, it summarizes a lot of them. Um, he wants to repeal those, and uh, he's got a one-day, a hundred-day, and a you know, a multi uh, month agenda to try and to try and do exactly that, and and put put this industry back in the hands of the experts and the states, and uh, with with a gentle federal backstop. You know, you
1: mentioned the Clean Power Plan there, and Waters of the U.S. are two big rules. Uh, waters of the U.S. is less industry or less energy focused, but Clean Power Plan is totally energy focused, and those are two of Obama's. Um, regulatory processes that are really detrimental to industry uh, in this country, uh, the energy industry in particular, but the waters of the U.S. is very scary for farming and agriculture, ranching as well, and federal courts have put a stay on both of those uh, rulings. What can Trump do? You're a congressman. You
2: understand yeah. the legal process. Yeah. What can yeah. he do with those? You know, that's a great question, and that's something that we're still looking into, but clearly, Marita, the fact that we have these stays gives, I think, tremendous—not just—I not, remember it's some about legal standing, but but ethical standing, if you will, um, social standing—to say, okay, we have to start over. Clearly, mistakes have been made. Clearly, there's an overreach here, and and I don't know exactly what can be done, but I know this much: that while there there's a stay going on, and while there's stayed, the next wave of federal um, both regulators and um, jurists and, and lawyers, they can take a different and likely would take a different legal position on some of those rules, especially in light of the fact that they're, they've been stayed. Because remember, the stayed not only doesn't just sort of stop the rule, but the judge the, or, or, or um, appellates in, the, in a case like that, they're making a determination that there's a, at least some likelihood, if not a, a, a profound likelihood, that the that the rule would be overturned. So the evidence would be such that if you're a good lawyer, you're going to say, you know what, I, you know, maybe my team before me screwed this thing up. We better repeal this, or we better rein it in, and see if we can't make a better argument that st- could stand the legal muster.
1: Yeah, it'll be it'll be interesting to see. But you're confident that that he wants to see those those rule rankings oh, not go no, go, go forward. forward. There's not even a
2: question in my mind about that. <laughs>
1: You know, good to hear. Let's move to another one that he has said he wants to overturn, and that is the Paris Climate Agreement. Uh, You know, and and obviously I'm firmly in support of of overturning our, our, uh, discontinuing our
2: participation in that agreement. What can he do with that? Yeah, great question, Marita, because, of course, remember the Paris Accord has to, it it is an agreement. This is not a, this is not a, uh, You know, this this is not some sort of a treaty that that can be ratified. At least it wouldn't be ratified. (laughs) Put it that way. The good news is the United States Senate, even in its current makeup and most likely even in a Democratic makeup, would not ratify the Paris Climate Accord. And um, so that's the first thing. The other thing is that most of the other countries' legislative bodies probably aren't going to. So it would be pretty easy. For a new president to just say we're not doing this, I, I don't think that's a problem whatsoever, and I think it'd be welcome. I think a lot of people welcome that because just whether you're talking about uh, the, the, you know, the TPP or or a trade deal with China, or you're talking about the the, nu- the nuclear deal with Iran, uh, this is consistent with with um, Mr. Trump in that he doesn't want to acquiesce our authority. To to world bodies, and he darn sure knows better than to trust other countries to um, to comply with something just because we're we're going to remember the first thing that that President Obama tried to do was a deal with China itself on on uh, greenhouse gas emissions, where China gets to continue to grow increase its greenhouse gas emissions through twenty thirty, while the United States decreases it. It's and puts ourselves at a competitive disadvantage globally, and somehow he considers that a good deal. So I think Paris is is, is similarly just not, uh, just doesn't make any sense whatsoever, and that will be an easy one, I think, for him to stop.
1: So what are some of the other changes that you think we can look for under a President Obama in energy policy? Uh,
2: president trump, so uh, <laughs> uh, yes i'm sorry thank yes. you <laughs> <laughs> yeah six six more months of that suffering and it'll be then our long suffering yes. is over. but 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 I think what you can look for is uh, getting back to sort of regular on the regular side is this a, a strong emphasis on states first, but then I think you can look for uh, on the federal side um you know more of what I call a technology neutral um um incentive programs so you know while he has he has said he likes in forms of green energy what he doesn't like is is that they're heavily subsidized to the detriment of others in other words he doesn't like the picking of the winners and losers so we've talked and i've corresponded with him about um let's just pick winners let's have a technology neutral tax policy for example that treats all the american American american-made energy sources the same so if you're if you're generating Coal-fired electricity, um, and you can do it with, uh, you know, by capturing the carbon in in the stream. Great. Re- remember that early on in the clean power plan, new source performance standards uh, um, require carbon capture and sequestration technology to. Uh, you know, to comply. Well, well, nobody can do that because the technology has not been feasible. It's not been economically uh, or, or completely tested in a way that can make it work. And yet we know it's in the making. Well, if you kill the innovator that can find the solution, you're never going to find the solution. But, of course, the Obama administration's goal is to kill the innovator, the innovator being the coal industry itself. Mr. Trump's saying yeah. no. If, if our goal is, is uh, carbon constraint. Coal can be part of that. Oil and gas can be part of that. Certainly gas can be part of that, but, and, and certainly wind and solar. But you can't take money from one part of the industry, give it to the other part of the industry, and say we're leveling the playing field. Instead, let's have a, uh, a tax policy and other policy, research and development policies, that are um, technology neutral. And, and uh, you know, that's a true level playing field. And then the marketplace, the consumer can pick the source that, that works best.
1: You know, we're this. This is such a fascinating discussion, and we're down to about two minutes left here. Uh, last thing I need to ask you about, and have you addressed? You know, Donald Trump has said that he is going to save the coal industry. I have people ask me all the time, "Can
2: we bring back coal? Is it too far gone?" What, what's your answer? My answer is, there's still enough of it that if we can stop the bleeding, that would be the first thing we have to do. So get get these regulations. That are killing it, like like the clean power plan in its entirety, Cold, uh, the the stream buffer zone rule, which is, you know, doesn't even make much sense in Appalachia, but makes zero sense in Wyoming, in Montana, and North Dakota, and 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 roll all of those back and and start fresh and give hope to the industry again, and then let the innovators find the solutions. You know, this happened with mercury, with. Uh, uh, uh nox and socks uh, you know sulfur dioxide and and uh, and and n- particulate matter the more traditional pollutions the industry right the true pollution. pollution that's right the true pollutions and donald trump talks a lot about the true pollutions the, the ones that, that, that we understand and the valid ones as he says well they can do the same with co2 if you don't kill them and so yeah, we can, we can solve that. But, but you that. know, if we, if we take
1: away the Paris Agreement and we take away the Clean Power Plan and we, we acknowledge that, that climate change is not the man-made disaster that the left tells us, why do we need to worry about CO2? I mean, this, the CO2 uh, has I been greening the earth and crops are growing. And, you know, why is, why, if, if we take away that as a concern, why, why would we
2: even aim uh, well, for could, constraining CO2? Well, Marita, you raise a very important point, but that's that's part of the in, the use of influence in the marketplace itself, of course. But but that said, there's certainly no downside. Anytime we can find ways to to um, reduce emissions, if not eliminate them, of all types, I suppose there's something good for it. now. If you're a corn farmer in North Dakota, that that CO two comes in pretty handy uh, with a yeah. growing season, and it makes for some pretty tall corn. Um, so you're you right in that sense. But the art of politics also requires you know, some um, understanding of what, what the public wants, and to the degree that the public wants something different than you believe to be reality, then it's our job to reconvince the public. And that's, uh, that's the art uh, part of the, uh, of the science of yeah. politics. So we're, we're, out, out, of, we're, out we're, we're out of time. We're
1: out of time, Congressman Kramer. It's been great to talk to you. I appreciate you taking time out of your busy schedule there at the Republican Convention to uh, give us some of the, the insides of Trump's
2: energy plan. I appreciate you joining
1: us on America's this Voice the, for
2: Energy. Pleasure's all mine. Thanks for the opportunity, Marita.
1: Thank you so much. We'll be right back.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today.
0: You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome back to America's Voice for Energy. I'm Marita Noon, and this week we've been talking about my column titled La Nina, excuse me, El Nino, La Nina, and Natural Gas. And as I stumbled on those terms, it's, you know, one of the reasons I wrote this column this week is because I get confused on which is El Nino, which is La Nina, and I wrote this column almost as much for myself as uh, as for my readers because I wanted to, to be able to get it firmly in my head which is which and uh, El Nino is is the the warmer weather that gives us actually oddly cooler summers but warmer winters and La Nina brings us more intense whatever you are meaning if you're in the cold parts of the country it's going to be even colder but if you're in the warmer parts of the country you're going to see a, a milder, winter. So we're going to talk next in this segment with a guest that's been with us before, Tony Deltorio, who is a freelance writer in the financial topics. He focuses specifically on energy and commodities. And uh, so Tony, when I wrote my column, you sent me an email back saying, good column, and I agree that natural gas prices are going to go up. So I invited you back with us uh, to discuss that topic.
4: Yeah, it's nice to be back, Marita.
1: Thank you. We've enjoyed having you on the show before and hope uh, it, it helps get you some additional exposure for your work as well. Yes. So natural gas prices, I mean, I, to me this is a good thing for the the producers who, you know, read my column every week, and that's part of the reason why when I sort of saw this news out there, I thought I, I kind of glomped onto that and said, I'm going to do this because there's been no good news for the natural gas industry in a long time.
4: Yeah, very long time. Many years, uh, yeah, the price of natural gas has been stuck around, you know, about 2 bucks per million BTUs for a long time until very recently.
1: Yeah, you know, it's interesting when you look at natural gas. I've been doing this now for almost 10 years. I went to my very first uh, industry event the New Mexico Independent Petroleum Association Annual Meeting in August of 2006. So, I'm, you know, right about at my 10-year mark. I didn't become Executive Director until January 2007, but I've been involved in this work now for almost 10 years. And it's funny, I look back at something I wrote very early on. I wrote a, a promotional piece to encourage people to become members. And when I look back at that piece, uh, which I recently threw away, a big box of them. But I talked about that we were importing natural gas, and how in those ten years that I've been involved in this, how dramatically that has changed. I mean, we do still import a tiny bit of natural gas up in the some communities in the Canadian border, as I understand it, but we're now exporting. Natural gas. Not a lot at this point, but because the facilities are not there, but we are actually exporting natural gas. We've had so
4: much. Right, exactly. Uh, The the facilities uh, down in your area, of course, were originally built as, uh, you know, to import gas. uh, natural gas and liquefied natural gas and now of course they converted those facilities to turning them into export facilities for the uh, liquefied natural gas so yeah like you said everything got turned on its head with the, the production uh, of course a lot of it's uh, up my way I live in western Pennsylvania of course the Marcellus Shale has just been you know incredible the amount of natural gas that they've pumped out of the ground around here
1: and how are things going economically in that area with the low natural gas prices that we've been experiencing uh, in recent years
4: yeah it's it's been it's been a struggle because uh, there there's so so much natural gas coming out of the marcellus and not really as of yet the infrastructure the pipeline to really get it out to the areas that need it that the natural gas prices you know in this area have actually been lower than the national average uh, uh, i believe uh, you know, about half of what the uh, national average price is, so. But the ground- thing yeah, so, you know, yeah, so the things that we're picking up, uh, Shell uh, recently, uh, about a month ago, said they are going to give the go-ahead for a big cracker ethane uh, plant in Beaver County, which is just a little bit uh, north of Pittsburgh, so obviously, uh, y- y- you know, that'll help. You know, they'll take a lot of the ethane from, uh, from those fields, so. And it should give this area a boost because it's been struggling a lot with the horrible pricing. Yeah, I read
1: about that. Tell me a little bit more about that. What's that actually going to do? I, I I remind you, you know, that I don't come from a background in this industry, and that's something I'm not terribly familiar with.
4: Yeah, yeah. basically, although I'm, I'm not a petrochemical engineer either, but, uh, yeah, basically uh, they'll take uh, the ethane, which is... Uh, sometimes, uh, you know, called wet gas and that, but they'll take the ethane from, you know, that comes out of the ground also along with the natural gas and the cracker plant basically turns that in- into uh, 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 ch- chemicals, uh, I believe it's polyethylene, uh, that chemical component. Right, it becomes a feedstock for
1: a lot of plastic. And, and yeah.
4: All the things that we use in everyday life, exactly.
1: Well, that's good news. Now, I assume since Shell is putting in this cracker plant in that area that this ethane uh, is, is common in Pennsylvania.
4: Yeah, it sure is. Again, uh, they've been trying to just either keep it underground or just stuff it into pipelines and, you know, there was nothing they could really do with it. I think ethane prices were down to like 20 cents or, or something a gallon or, or something outrageously really low like that, but... Obviously, with Shell coming on board, that that will improve things a lot because they'll be a, you know, a big end user of ethane.
1: Uh, yeah. You know, in the last segment, I talked with Phil Flynn, and he and I talked about uh, pipeline constraints and that obviously in Pennsylvania there you've got an abundance of natural gas. Yeah. But if we have a really cold El Nino winter, there, There's not really the pipelines to get that natural gas to the northeast in particular right. after they've shut down nuclear plants and coal-fired power plants. They're really, really dependent on natural gas, and especially if you have a polar vortex, wind and solar don't do you much good. Um, what do you see happening on that?
4: Ah, well, really uh, not much. I know both you and I have written about this uh, in, in the northeast uh the environmental groups are still fighting pipelines to come from the Marcellus shale fields, you know, up to New York and you know places even further north in New England. And uh, yeah,
1: I remember, I remember writing about, and I haven't followed this. I believe it was, I don't know if you know this either, but um, I wrote a while back, a couple of years ago, on the closure of the, I believe it was the Salem Harbor coal-fired power plant. And they had at the time, again, I haven't followed what happened, but at the time they had a company who wanted to come in and buy the plant and convert the plant to natural gas. But the environmental groups, they needed a a, a pipeline because the coal was able to come in by train and just be dumped there in the yard, so to speak. But they need a pipeline for natural gas, and the environmentalists, uh, we're we're fighting to block that. Do
4: you have any idea what happened on that one? I don't know in that specific case. Uh, I I know it, you know the only thing I know is these pipelines are still being delayed because again you know the environmental lawsuits there. So it's they'll probably won't, won't be built and completed anyways. Probably at least for so, several more years. So they better hope uh, the La Nina winter doesn't really uh, doesn't really strike the Northeast, but. But, yeah, it's
1: projected to.
4: Yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, at one point uh, that, that people don't realize about the La Nina when, when compared to El Nino, as you mentioned, of course, it, it, uh, we, it gives us hot and dry summers, for instance, in the Middle East, you know, like uh, uh, our breadbasket there. But it also gives you very cold winters. And one point that people don't realize is that La Nina has a tendency to last longer than an El Nino event. So often El Nino may come and go, like in one season, where a La Nina event can possibly last a couple years. Sometimes it could drag on over two years, exactly, yeah. Because the last time... Uh, I hate to drag it into agriculture, but when when we had a big drought in the Midwest, I believe it was 2012, when the grain prices went through the roof, well, that was the continuation of uh, La Nina pattern that had been in place for a couple years there. So, yeah, that's the bad thing about La Nina. It tends to sort of, you know, it's like a bad house guest, you know, doesn't want to leave. <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, like I said, I, I read in, from my research that La Nina tends to make, it's like an extreme normal, whatever is normal for you. So those of us in the southwest, which includes me, we're not gonna expect, we are not expecting a really intense winter as a result of La Nina, but particularly the Pacific Northwest, the Midwest, and the Northeast, uh, are probably going to be seeing a much colder winter and pro- volat- more volatile weather, and uh, b- back to polar vortex, as they call it, conditions.
4: Yeah, exa- exactly right. And uh, as you mentioned, that sh- sh- what's already helped natural gas prices, w- which got close to three per million BTU. I think they're around two eighty, but. It should help. Uh, should help the industry because uh, I know the natural gas count, as far as the rigs, uh, beginning of June, June third, uh, it hit its all-time low of only 82 active rigs in this country. So, uh, of course, since then, obviously, we've had a slight pickup since the natural gas prices have have gone up. But this year, I don't know how far back it goes. But this year is the first year probably at least in a handful of years that where the increase in gas output in our country isn't keeping up with the rising demand, you know, that we've experienced, well, so far, because it's been a a hot summer so far.
1: Right, right. And and why is the uh, the output not keeping up, in in your opinion?
4: Well, again, uh, you know, as I mentioned, uh, the rate count is definitely down. So there's you know, less people. You know, actually, actively, you know, bringing the gas out of the ground because again, it's just you know t- the price is too low, and of course right. the uh, and and of course uh, the, the the demand is up because with uh, the natural gas now uh, overcoming uh, uh, coal usage as far as generating electricity, uh, uh, the uh, the. Use, uh, per use, per every for each degree that the temperatures goes up and down, you use more natural gas. Uh, in sure. other words, because we're using less coal, and we're using more natural gas to fire our power plants.
1: You know, I've only got about 30 seconds left, Tony, and this is a little bit out of left field, and you may just say I have no idea, and by the time I ask the question, we're going to be down to you just saying yes or no, basically. But, you know, Donald Trump has promised he's going to bring back the coal industry. Do you think that if he is elected president that that's a possibility? Can the coal industry be brought back?
4: My opinion, no. Uh, I, I don't believe so.
1: Hard news, hard news. Well, yeah. I, hope, I hope that he can at least slow the decline. Yeah, that's
4: but, what I'm uh, hoping, too. Fingers crossed, yeah.
1: Yeah, great. Tony Del Torio. thanks so much for joining us today uh, to discuss uh, the natural gas prices. Appreciate your time and expertise.
4: Okay, thanks, Marita. Take care.
3: We'll, we'll
1: look forward to next time. Stay All tuned. Right. We'll be right back on America's Voice for Energy.
3: Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare.
4: for the tenacious approach in their presentation and proof of what is right find out more
0: at www.usjf.net support usjf as they support you did you miss the show that you really wanted to hear all of our programs are available for download on americaswebradio.com and on itunes you can listen to your favorite programs on americaswebradio.com anytime you like You're listening to AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: Welcome to our closing segment of America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking today about El Nino, La Nina, and natural gas. Within my column, I tucked a few comments that I lifted from a blog that I found and a new source that I was totally unfamiliar with, an organization called ACOVA. And the blog post was written by Jonathan Lee, who is their senior energy market intelligence manager, which is a very impressive-sounding title. And Jonathan's post was titled, La Nina and Energy Price Increases on the Way question mark and i picked this up and he talked about the elect the impact to electricity generation of the rising price or the potential rising price of natural gas so i reached out to jonathan and he's with us for this closing closing segment today jonathan thanks for joining us on america's voice for energy and i'm pleased to uh, make your acquaintance
5: it's a pleasure to be here marita
1: I hope you'll be with us many more times. So let's get right into the topic. We've already talked with a couple of commodities brokers who feel that the price of natural gas is definitely going to be on the rise. And, of course, we've already seen uh, a dramatic increase in the last couple months. What do you see happening?
5: You know, I would have to uh, concur with them. Um, From the information and the fundamental factors that that I'm looking at, uh, in terms of natural gas, the, uh, w- with supply starting to, uh, even though supply is still very strong, uh, there's some demand uh, pieces that are coming online, uh, especially focused towards this winter, as, as you look at the, the power sector soaking a, up a lot more uh, natural gas as, as the U.S. produces more electricity from, from natural gas fire generation. A lot has come off from coal. Uh, as a source of energy generation, and so, uh, you know, looking out towards this winter, I could see prices continue to to trend higher uh, as we we move towards winter.
1: Now, how long does it take for that kind of pricing to translate into consumers' energy consumers' energy bills? Does that happen almost immediately, or do they have to go to the public regulatory commission, for example? And, and plead their case to get a rate increase?
5: It depends on, on the scenario. So in much of the, the states in the the Mid-Atlantic and the Northeast, New England, those are uh, deregulated uh, states. So in terms of a commercial customer, um, if they operate their own third-party supply contracts, uh, they could see those increases real-time if they were on, a say, an indexed-type product. uh rate on the regulated side, or a, a customer or residential, commercial side that that does not uh, operate their own third-party supply contracts, that does correct has to go through a regulatory process. Could take, could show up um, in New York. It's it's monthly, so it's it's more uh, impactful early on. In in other states in the the Mid Atlantic, uh, Midwest, it can take anywhere from three to four months to, to six months to, to show up on a customer's bill.
1: So it's not years.
5: In terms of supply uh, is what we're, we're talking about here, uh, that tends to impact bills sooner. When you're talking uh, distribution, which is another side of a customer's bill, um, that, that does tend to take uh, years to, to go through the, the regulatory rate-making process.
1: Yeah, I, I was wondering if people will feel it, you know, because I feel like, and, and I don't recall if you said this in your column or whether I just added it because I you talked about wholesale you, you uh, electricity prices tumbled along with the wholesale price of natural gas being at their lowest level in 17 years, and that's something that I lifted from your column, and um, but I, I feel I feel like the low price of natural gas over the last. Several years has really hidden from the consumer the high cost of renewables going going into the power supply.
5: Uh, that could certainly be um, certainly be the case uh, with natural gas being so low. Um, it's it's masked not only uh, potential increases from the renewable side, uh, but also on the the distribution side. So utilities are looking to strengthen their infrastructure. Um, and that the impact to customers isn't as great um, when supply is is lower, as it has been the last couple years outside of, you know, that winter of 2013, 2014. Um, but it, it does tend to mask overall increases in other areas of, of the energy market.
1: Well, good. I'm glad to hear that I'm kind of right on that. Uh, you know, I'm not the expert on this that you are. I write generally. You and I haven't interacted a lot before but I write on energy issues generally, and so I count on experts such as you for a more specific uh, expertise. But that's been my perception is that these low na- natural gas prices have, made, have uh, prevented consumers from feeling the full hit of the higher-cost renewables. And as a result, because, you know, most people don't follow this stuff. Most people, they just look at the bill, pay the bill. They don't they don't really look at what the bill is broken down to and what they're paying per kilowatt hour and so forth
5: right it, it's, it's a complex uh, you know bill if you look at your utility bill there's there's charges on there that you know it's it's like hey where did where did that where does where does that go or what does that pay for and utilities try to do a good job of, of uh, uh, informing the, the consumer about those but um, you know I don't know about you, but sometimes, as a looking at my residential bill, it's it's sometimes you're you're looking at things that just don't quite make sense.
1: Yeah, that's definitely definitely a factor. So, what are do you think, um, from your perspective as senior energy market intelligence manager, uh, are we going to be seeing some uh, shortages, power shortages, uh, this winter? I don't think that's
5: necessarily going to happen this winter. Um, it, you may have been following in the news the the situation in in California with the the, the natural gas storage leak at Aliso Canyon uh, and yeah. the potential for them customers in the LA market, Southern California to have rolling uh, rolling blackouts or about the um, utility commission said about maybe 14 days this summer. I don't think that, that's had an yeah actually
1: I, I wrote on that t- I wrote on that two weeks ago so yes I definitely mm-hmm. have been following that uh, but
5: in terms of, of shortages uh, blackouts I, uh, I I don't see that happening uh, this winter um, there's still a lot of um, uh, oh. sources uh, if, if you know potentially if we get into the winter uh, if you look back you know the winter of t- 2013 2014 the so-called Polar vortex winter, um, right? There, there is potential for uh, price volatility heading into that that time frame, uh, specifically due to um, in the in the New England market, uh, the infrastructure for pipelines to, to move natural gas um, to those power stations, and at the same time to, to move it to uh, homes and businesses as people like to to stay warm during the winter, which is the funny to, uh, thing about that. Yeah, right. Um, so the the pipelines aren't built out enough to potentially handle some of those, those really cold winter days, especially when it's prolonged cold periods like we saw a few winters back.
1: Yeah, and that's what Phil Flynn was talking about, particularly in New England, and that same idea that you just mentioned is why, I don't know if you noticed in my column, there's just one little phrase where I talk about pipeline constraints, and I just threw that in there. But that's what, I was, that's what I was thinking of when I use that phrase pipeline constraints, that particularly in New England, that as they've shut down nuclear and shut down coal, both of which I'm a fan of, but they've shut both of those down, but yet don't have really the pipelines to provide the natural gas uh, on a high demand time as this La Nina winter uh, projections may do.
5: Correct, and that that is a concern that uh, commercial uh, customers in those in that footprint should be should be aware of heading into to this winter. Um, prices aren't you know super volatile at this point, um, so if they if they do manage their own third-party supply contracts, it's something to look at um, before you know the winter really really kicks in.
1: Well, let's talk for a moment. Your, call, your piece you wrote, as I said, it's titled La Nina and Energy Price Increases on the Way. Um, what, what's the role of La Nina? What are you looking at as you're trying to, uh, because you, you try to help utilities uh, manage this. Is that, am I correct in understanding what you all do at ACOVA?
5: Uh, We we help utilities with with some of their uh, programs. Uh, We mostly focus on the commercial industrial side, helping them manage their energy prices.
1: Okay. So you're obviously looking at at La Nina. What are you telling them?
5: Absolutely. Um, So it's it's in the early stages, uh, but right now uh, the the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, so NOAA, is basically saying that there's about a 75% chance that la nina will occur this winter over the last 65 years um la nina occurs in in a weak to to strong state um it's happened every time um over the last 65 years two years at least two years following Um, so what does that la nina mean for the u.s Uh, in terms of winter there's still a lot of other factors that come into play but in a traditional scenario um, cooler, wetter temperatures, uh, conditions, weather conditions affect the Midwest, northern Midwest, upper Midwest, uh, mid-Atlantic, northeast New England market, and then usually the southern tier of the nation is, is drier and warmer. Um, so we, we talked about the, the pipeline constraints in the New England market. So if you get a, a really cold winter up in that market, uh, those are some of the highest-priced uh, energy costs in the nation and so volatility could come back and and potentially shock some customers heading into this winter
1: yeah well that's that's uh, an interesting interesting thing to follow and personally i i i hate to sound masochistic but i kind of hope that that happens more i hope it happens more to residents i mean i don't really hope it happens i hate to say that right, right. but uh, but i you know people the, the energy policies that we have are so, in my opinion, detrimental. That we, you need something like that to wake people up. And Jonathan, we've got about a minute left for your your closing comments on that.
5: Uh, not to not to weigh in too much in the in the political uh, arena, but um, any any uh, you know policy that 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 focuses mostly on one one source or um, you know, can, can have impacts, you know, down the road. It's, um, in terms of uh, energy prices, they've been pretty low. If you look at the last 12 years or or 17 years for that matter, uh, we're at one of the lowest points, um, and we have been for the last, you know, three, four years, relatively speaking. And so, you know, something like a a, a really volatile winter or volatile summer uh, does tend to wake up uh, people and, and have them take a, a closer look at, at what's going on you know, in in the details, and so that's I think always a good thing to to know what's what's happening um, where you have your your house or you have a, a national footprint of businesses.
1: Well put, Jonathan. Thank you so much for joining us on America's Voice for Energy. We've been talking with Jonathan Lee, Senior Energy Market Intelligence Manager for ECOVA, and I encourage you to do an Internet search on his comments if you're interested in this topic. We're out of time on America's Voice for Energy, heard every week on americaswebradio.com. Thanks for listening.
0: You're listening to americaswebradio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.
1: I'm Marita News, and I would like to invite you to listen live or download my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio.
0: You're listening to
3: AmericasWebRadio.com, the pioneer and leader in chat radio. Thank you for listening.